I'm just going to say a few words of introduction to this new series, sermon series, before we have a look at that text. But today we begin a new sermon series entitled Preaching Tough Texts. It's something that ministers have to do. Many of you will have to do it. But more importantly, it's something that all Christians have to do. We have to think through this because, let's face it, at some point, someone is going to come to you with a doozy of a text and say, please explain. It's bound to happen. But to be clear, this is not a lecture series. So our goal here is not simply to take problematic texts in the Bible and explain them. Uh, The aim of this sermon series is to preach life-giving messages for the church, for the people of God, from these so-called tough texts. However, as we go through the series, you will find that these passages require some explanation. They require that. Um, And that's often the case with preaching, as some of you will know. They require the use of particular interpretive principles that help us to understand what's going on. Um, As you're probably aware, uh, there is no one-size-fits-all interpretive principle that does the job for every text. So, uh, well, there are actually dozens of interpretive principles that keep all of us in a job here at Trinity, uh, which is a good thing for us. That was a joke. There are other things that we do here as well. Some things, so, but some of the weeks in, the, in this series as we go through, we will be, the interpretive principle might be that we need to balance the human element with the divine element in the inspiration of Scripture and in understanding that. Now, that doesn't mean that we take the easy way out. Uh, I was reading a book just this week, uh, and I was a bit shocked that the author did take this easy way out by saying, humans make mistakes, and this tough text happens to be one of them. Uh, that, that's a bit of a dicey way of, of doing our exegesis and our interpretation, and our doctrine of Scripture, our understanding of inspiration, uh, should perhaps be questioned if we take that approach. We take Paul's words seriously in the New Testament when he says all of the Old Testament, which is what he means when he says Scripture, is God-breathed and useful for the church, all of it. Um, Other weeks, we're going to need to ask whether certain narratives are not prescriptive, but descriptive. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean that sometimes things are narrated because they happened, not because we're supposed to copy what happened. Okay, so Elisha at one point is going up a hill and some teenagers from the local youth club come and call him Baldy. It's not right, is it, Sunya? And they say, go on up, Baldy. And he calls down a curse on them. And uh, two she-bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of these teenagers. Amen. One of my, my favourite tales. When I was a secondary teacher, I, I started the class with that text. Often. But <laughs> the principle is that if that is not a prescriptive text, but descriptive, it's just telling us something that happened. Now, it doesn't tell us that Elisha shouldn't have done that or that he should, but it certainly doesn't tell us that we should behave like that as well. And so sometimes we have narratives about Abraham where he does the right thing. Sometimes he does the wrong thing. Sometimes Moses, right thing, wrong thing. Paul in the New Testament, right thing, wrong thing. So it's not enough just to say there's a story about it. I'm just going to copy what's done in the Bible. This is another interpretive principle that will no doubt come up. Um, There are plenty more like this, and I'm not going to go into them all or I'll never get to this text, but the one that we're going to look at today is one of the most basic uh, interpretive principles for Bible reading. It's a good place for us to start our series, 
and we'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, of course, I have no idea how the faculty and other preachers are going to tackle their tough texts and what they're going to say, but the sermon series should leave you with a better understanding of certain passages in the Bible, but also of some of those general principles that you can take away and apply yourself. And that's important. That's really important because, as I often say in my preaching class, when a preacher draws meaning from the text before a congregation, what she's doing is modeling, providing a model for how to read your Bible, right? So when we preach in churches, we are uh, teaching our congregations how to read the Bible. And so wherever possible, um, we're trying to do that in an exemplary way. If, as I said to the candidates last week, if what you're doing looks like a magic trick, <laughs> you know, check this difficult text and look at this life-giving thing and I'm, you'll never know how I got there, then people can go away just thinking, I give up. Why read the Bible? You know, it's, it's, it's just for academics or professionals or, or ministers of the word. What we want to be doing is modeling how everyone can read the Bible. So in one sense, uh, what we hope to do this semester and in this podcast series is to give you some models for Bible reading. All right, without further ado, let's get started. Today's text was just those three verses. I'm going to read them again because they're a little bit hard hitting. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him, that's Moses, and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. I think it's fair to say that the passage we're looking at today is a doozy. Uh, here's what a few biblical scholars have to say about it. Uh, Terence Fretheim, who I, I often mention, I like his, his Old Testament work, he says Exodus 4 verses 24 to 26 is among the most enigmatic verses in the entire book of Exodus. Another well-known well Old Testament scholar, uh, Martin Note, he looks at various ways to interpret this, works them all through, and then concludes by saying, but these are only vague hypotheses on a passage which is quite inexplicable. And my favourite, Brevard Childs, uh, excellent Old Testament scholar, says, few texts contain more problems for the interpreter than these few verses, which have continued to baffle throughout the centuries. So I'm pleased to have this opportunity today. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here with you. Uh, but let's not make any assumptions. So we've read the text. Let's name the problem. What is the problem with these verses? Why do they qualify as a tough text? Well, in a nutshell, it's pretty strange that Yahweh meets Moses in the middle of the night and wants to kill him. It's even stranger because God has only just met with Moses at the beginning of this uh, very chapter um, at the burning bush, you remember that story, and convinced him to go to Egypt and liberate the Hebrews. Right? That's just happened. And it's even stranger still that Zipporah somehow resolves this situation by suddenly circumcising their son. Nice bit of alliteration there. By suddenly circumcising their son, I won't say it a third time, and, and resolving this situation so that God lets up and leaves Moses alone. And her bizarre action uh, brings resolution to the situation, but we don't really understand why, what's going on. So it qualifies as a tough text, for sure. 
But what's our way forward? What is life-giving for the church in this text? Uh, it's quite different preaching it to teaching it because I, I remember, I think it was two years ago or 18 months, teaching this in my Pentateuch class um, and working through all the different interpretive options. And you can do that and you know, people in the class, like Dion, you were there, can say, ah, I've got a better understanding of what might be going on. But it's quite another thing to then uh, be asked to preach it and say, what's the life-giving word for the church here? And you will find this in your class. Sometimes you, you get a better understanding of a text, what's going on, Old or New Testament, but then to then go and preach it is another matter. And that's why you take as many preaching classes here as possible. <laughs> um, but the, I, I said earlier that the interpretive principle we're going to look at today is one of the most basic it's the one of the first rules of reading that you will learn. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing that some of you already know this rule. In a word, what is it? It's the first rule of reading. Genre? That's pretty good. That's a, I'll give that a virtual suite. I've got something here. Here you go. Catch it. Um, another one? Dylan, we were talking about this yesterday, mate. Yeah, I thought you'd help me out here. Yes, well, I would probably say context. Context. Thank you, brother. Context. I've got a snake here. <laughs> so, anyway, we're on a podcast, so I won't, I won't talk too much about virtual suites. We'll keep moving. When facing a difficult text, it's nearly always helpful to keep in mind the big picture with the detail. You could say keep one eye on the forest and the other on the trees, uh, which is just another way of saying context. Put the text in context. And look, this isn't some bright idea that you've never heard before. Okay? You, you live by this principle, I assure you, even if you're not aware of it. When you're watching TV, you don't just pay attention to the scene that's unfolding. You're always asking questions like, who is this character? Where have I seen her before? And how does that fit into this larger plot that's unfolding? How does this scene inform the larger plot? And what was happening that makes this scene important? And so on. And it applies not just to books and films, but to a lot of things in life. How you spend your money. You make a mistake in this area, you make a general rule for what you'll do next. And so on. Oh, I, I hope so. Um, particular experiences with God are no exception. Our understanding of God works this way too. So the way that if you, if you pray about something in particular, it shapes your understanding of God's character, right? Depending on what happens in that situation. And over time, our general understanding of God is shaped and honed by prayer. If, if for example, I'm, I'm cut off in traffic by another driver, can I just call down lightning on that car or ask the Lord to open up a huge hole in the road in front of them? Well, I could. But it's inconsistent with my understanding of God's character, of who God is. So I don't tend to do that, except in jest. Uh, and when we read the Bible, it's helpful to keep this principle in mind. So if we focus so closely on the trees that we lose sight of the forest around us, we lose our bearings, we don't know where we are. Um, and earlier I read only three verses and I asked Vicky to only read three verses and I did that deliberately because I wanted you to feel like, well, this is definitely a surprising text, but where are we? Like, what's happening? Where's Moses going? And, you know, did any of you feel that when you heard the reading? Yeah, a lot of nodding. That's good. 
And that means you are wanting to know the context. Well, let's just quickly look at this. The context where in the early chapters of Exodus, we've heard about how Moses was drawn from the Nile River uh, as a baby and brought up in Pharaoh's palace. We've seen that he killed an Egyptian and had to flee from Pharaoh to Midian where he married Zipporah. And we've seen that God appeared to Moses while he was tending to some flocks out in the desert. He saw this burning bush. Uh, And God called him at that time to have a certain purpose, a very specific purpose in his life, to call, uh, to go and save or liberate the Hebrews from Egypt, from slavery there, and to lead them to the promised land. And that conversation concluded with Moses taking the staff that God had given him and heading towards Egypt. And then... Suddenly, we read this, that God is trying to kill Moses. So let's read our three verses again, and I'm just going to give them a bit bit more context. I'm going to read from Exodus 4, verse 18 through to 31. Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they're still living. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refused to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. Seems to be an important statement. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs with which he had charged him. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery... They bowed down and worshipped. Now, there are a few things happening along the way in this passage, but the basic movement is from Midian to Egypt. Moses leaves Midian with Jethro's blessing. Do you remember his words? Go in peace. And he's greeted in Egypt by Aaron at the other end, who greets him with a kiss. As well as that, the chapter concludes with Israel bowing down and worshipping Yahweh because he's going to liberate them. So you see, the, the, the passage in its context begins and ends with these expressions of peace, which just makes our tough text that much more tougher. I probably would have worded that differently if I could rewind, but I can't. Things begin peacefully, and they end peacefully. So why this violent scene right in the middle? Well, let's take a closer look. Verse 24, it's pretty clear. God wants to kill Moses. Sometimes I read something like that and I'll admit, I go to the Hebrew because I think maybe there's a translation problem here. But there are three verbs. God encountered or bumped into or met Moses and he wanted, second verb, to make him dead. 
That's <laughs> the Hebrews. The he- Hebrews is a nice way of putting that. To cause someone to be dead, which we tend to translate to kill them. So it, that's pretty straightforward. It's unambiguous. Uh, God wants to make Moses dead. But it's, it, while it's clear that God wants to make him dead, it's not clear why, is it? The second thing that we know is that circumcision of their son somehow changes this, causes God to release Moses. But again, we have no idea why. Now, in literary theory, if you're studying literature, these kinds of holes in the story, uh, you might remember this from a sermon I preached last semester on 1 Samuel 25. These are called narrative gaps. And they're gaps in the storytelling where you, the reader, are invited to work out what's going on. Right? There's a hole in the story, and you use your skills of deduction to make sense of what's going on. And it's that missing piece of the puzzle, actually, that that makes TV shows and movies and books quite exciting. Um, Katie and I, my wife and I, like to watch crime shows, um, not because we're morbid, but because we we like trying to work out what's going on. So, you know, you've got a serial killer or something like that in the show, and someone trying to catch them and stop this series of murders happening or whatever it is. And sometimes when we're watching one of these shows, one of us will grab the remote and pause it and say, I've got a theory. Do you, want to, do you want to know what it is? Sometimes I say, no. <laughs> Press pause again, please. <laughs> Press play. Um, but sometimes we're interested in each other's ideas. Um, and that's part of the fun of watching a TV show like that, is trying to work out and stay a step ahead, if possible, of the investigator and see if you can work out what's actually going on. That's why they're called whodunits, I guess. But whether we're talking about the Bible or TV uh, or, or, or a novel, Often these gaps, they have to do with motive, right? So something's been done, but why? You know, why would that person do such a thing? A couple of examples from the Bible. You know, you've got in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel both offer sacrifices. Uh, God accepts one and doesn't accept the other, and we're left wondering why did he accept one and not the other, and we look for details in the text that might give us an idea why. In the Gospels, when Jesus heals people, And they understand that he's the Messiah and they say something about that. He often tells them, just keep it a secret. And as readers, we sometimes think, didn't Jesus come so that people would believe in him? You know, what's the big secret? People know he's the Messiah. Shouldn't they go and tell everyone? But Jesus is like, just keep that quiet for now. And so we're reading through the Gospels and we're wondering why this messianic secret. In this passage in Exodus 4, we have a striking narrative gap, God's motive. Why does he want to kill Moses? And why on earth does the circumcision of their son make God relent? Now, there are different ways of filling this gap, different theories. Um, And just a couple real quick. Uh, Some people think that Moses just has to pay for his crimes. Do you remember what he did back in chapter 2 when he was still in Egypt? He killed someone. Buried him in the sand. So some scholars say, here it is. Here's the the recompense or the the judicial justice. Uh, God is accounting for something that Moses did earlier, which was just left undone. But that doesn't really address circumcision at all, does it? I mean, we we wonder how circumcision would have anything to do with God saying, you killed someone and you've got to pay for it. And that leads us to another theory, uh, which is that Moses found out about circumcision back in Genesis 17, 
when that covenant with God is made. And circumcision was part of that covenant in Genesis 17. And he hadn't yet circumcised his son. So God is cross about that. I actually suspect that sometimes when we try to fill these narrative gaps, though, with, with clever theories, and that is the stuff of biblical scholarship sometimes, but sometimes we're in danger of missing the point. And what I mean is that if God's motive, if the text says nothing about God's motive, then possibly we shouldn't be spending too much time trying to work out God's motive. But what we can do in this instance, I think, is step back and say, what's the author's motive? What's the inspired author's motive in telling the story like this? Why tell the story like this? Why leave this huge dissonance between a God who desires to save and God's sudden impulse to kill? We've got an incredible tension in this passage. That's what's, why it's a tough text. Between grace at the beginning and peace, grace and worship at the end, and judgment right there in the middle. Inexplicable judgment. So God has heard the cries of the Israelites. It's fantastic. And he says, I am coming down to do something about it. Exodus 3 verse 7 says, this is the Lord speaking, he says, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down. I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. And those opening chapters of Exodus, they prepare us for what happens when God, God's holiness comes down among us. God comes down in mercy to save. But at the same time, for the next 10 chapters, if you keep reading in Exodus, God's holiness is unleashed on the Egyptians, isn't it? In a very different way. And perhaps you're somewhat familiar with the 10 plagues that strike Egypt. God comes down in judgment upon Egypt. And in this tough text, we see God's holiness coming down in judgment upon Moses as well. And this, I think, is where our tough texts Tough text yields a really significant but uncomfortable insight. And that is that contrary to what we expect, things do not necessarily get easier when God comes down in response to our cries for help. Because if you really want God in your life, you must be prepared to have all of God in all of your life. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I've cried out to God, cried out uh, for help. I don't know if you can think of a time like that in your own life, maybe recently, maybe more in the distant past. I've cried out to God because I have felt incredibly misunderstood. I have cried out to God because of regret. I've cried out to God because of my own failure. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with crying out to God for help in those times. But what happens next? I'm ashamed to say that although God comes down in mercy, in forgiveness, in love, in understanding, and he picks me back up onto my feet, what do we do? Very often, once we're back on our feet, 
we say, thank you, I'll take it from here. Because we don't want all of God in all of our lives. We just want him to do what we can't do for ourselves. I heard a preacher refer to God the other day as kind of a Siri on the phone. Can you give me this? Can you give me that? I need this. I just need some information. I need a prayer answered. And then we get back to life. But throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, this is the truth that Israel can't handle. All of God in all of life. Throughout the Pentateuch, the whole Pentateuch, this is the truth that Israel can't handle. All of God in all of life. In fact, the whole Old Testament, this is the truth that Israel can't handle. All of God in all of life. And yes, you can receive God's love and mercy. You can receive his hope, gifts, courage and insight for yourself. But when was the last time you cried out to God for judgment? Now, I don't mean punishment. There's a difference between punishment and judgment. It would be strange to cry out for punishment. I think it's thunderstorms coming, Lord. Strike me down. That would be unusual, I think. Uh, but a judgment is very different to punishment. Judgment is that dividing line between black and white, wrong and right. Sometimes we find this is not good and this is good and I'm actually not sure where I stand. A judgment is a declaration of truth. And with God, we get judgment as well as grace. We get declarations of truth along with love and forgiveness. And so, my friends, if you want God in your life, then as well as all the wonderful positive gifts, you will also get conviction about what is wrong in your life. And that's a good thing. It doesn't feel good, but it's a good thing. You will also get God's voice, sometimes loud, sometimes quiet, but calling, prompting you to love people who you think of as unlovable. You will get God's call on your life to make sacrifices, to go out of your way, to do things that you don't really want to do. And you will get God's demand on you for obedience, even when you don't understand why. So whatever God's motive in this passage for wanting to kill Moses, it seems that the author's motive is somewhat clearer. This passage has been written in such a way as to juxtapose God's compassionate love for his people with his firm judgments. I'm going to say that again because that's the punchline. <laughs> this passage seems to have been written in such a way as to juxtapose put side by side God's compassionate love for his people with his firm judgments. It's not one or the other. When God comes down, Moses gets both. When God comes down, Israel gets both. When God comes down, you, me, we, we get both. Salvation and judgment. I remember when I was 20 years old, if you can picture me with long flowing locks, uh, and I was about 20 years old driving my car uh, my first year of driving. I broke three road laws in one hit, so I ended up in court. And I'm not going to tell you that story because it'll be the only thing you remember about this sermon. 
But I do remember the judge in the courtroom being merciful on one hand, uh, and I could see that he could tell that I was really sorry. I mean, I'd tied my hair back. I had a green microfiber suit on. That says sorry, right? I shouldn't have said that on a recording. <laughs> but I also remember him, as well as showing me grace, saying quite firmly to me, this must never happen again. And I remember trembling as I stood there and saying, yes, sir, or yes, your honor. The most obvious place in human history that judgment and grace come together is on the cross, isn't it? God's desire to judge sin and redeem us, the sinner. God's judgment and grace, they're not polar opposites. I spend a lot of time fighting this idea, sometimes teaching Old Testament. People just come with the assumption that the Old Testament is judgment, the New Testament's grace. What do I do with that? How do I hold these together? But they're inseparable. God's love and judgment are inseparable. They're two sides of the one coin, and you can't have only half of God. God will bring mercy into your life, absolutely, and I think you've experienced that already. But he will also bring judgment because he loves you. The reason God judges sin so seriously, the reason God is desperate to get sin out of your life is because he longs to come down and be near you. But you can't have that liberation unless, with God, you desire to judge the sin in your life. That is to make a decision about it and be rid of it. Now somehow in this story, I don't know how, it must be women's intuition, Zipporah has the insight to grasp what's wrong in this situation. And she knows exactly what's needed to fix it. But whether or not we understand God in these verses, we can trust what the inspired author is telling us, that when God comes to save and liberate, he also comes to judge. And the purpose of his judgment is to remove obstacles from your path. They're hindering you. They're stopping you. And God wants to remove them. So this morning as we close, I, and I apologize, this has been a longish sermon. You've done well. But as we close, I, I want to do something unusual, and that is pray for judgment. Not pray for punishment, but we need to change our thinking about judgment. It's not a bad thing. It's a gift. Conviction of sin when it comes is a gift. It's a wonderful thing. So we are not going to pray that on our way out of here any of us is struck down, just to be really clear. We are going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show us what obstacles stand in our way that need clearing. So I'm just going to invite for a moment of silence and then I'm going to pray. But let's bow our heads, close our eyes and just be open, be receptive to the Spirit speaking to you now. Just in the quiet, take some time to ask God what he would like to remove from your life. Lord, we want your grace. We long for it, for hope and truth and forgiveness and courage and discipline 
and goodness in our lives. But help us to see that we can't have only one side of you, one half of you. We want your holiness, so we ask for your judgment too. Show us where we're getting it wrong again and again. Show us where in our relationships we need healing. Show us the things that we simply don't have the courage to look at. We want all of you in all of our lives. Amen.